0: Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino Join us as we dig
1: deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us.
2: Thank you. Good evening, Long Island. Okay. Everybody, we have a new
0: Welcome to episode four. We're going to get into what is one of my personal favorites in Billy's illustrious career. We're talking Live from Long Island, recorded December 29th, 1982 at the Nassau Coliseum. For
1: this episode, we put together a viewing companion to the video. We did some research about it, uh, and then we're going to go through it song by song. So if you've seen it before, or if this will be your first time, we really hope this episode brings a new perspective and more enjoyment to what's really an amazing show.
0: So this concert was originally recorded for an HBO special called Billy Joel in Concert, which came out on HBO on July 24th, 1983. On this show, which was the tail end of the nylon curtain tour, this was the band we had billy joel obviously on piano and vocals liberty devito on drums doug stegmaier on bass and vocals russell javers on guitar and vocals david brown on guitar mark rivera who was a newcomer to the band on this tour on saxophone and percussion and vocals and then we had david lebolt who was a new member as well on keyboards
1: yeah this video is a great testament to the classic lineup stagecraft um and also their ability to recreate what you hear on the records faithfully with it still sounding live As you watch, you'll see people jump to different instruments and play slightly different parts uh, that accommodate arrangement elements that sound great in the studio but don't translate live. And you can see their enthusiasm for the performance. There's a lot of movement on stage, some of it's choreographed, but a lot of the moments seem very genuine and organic. You can catch glimpses of this on older bootleg videos, but it's never really quite on full display like it is here, and it never really happened like that again. Um, So, for instance, if you take the old Live at the Capitol Theater in 76 video, Mm -hmm. you'll find the full show in black and white on YouTube. The band is hot and tight, but they're not as animated. At least you don't have as much room on the smaller stage. We don't get the panoramic camera views to capture it all. And then after this, in 1984, Billy hit the road with his core band, plus a brass section and backup singers. It sounded great, but it wasn't that small, intimate group anymore. Uh, so ultimately, what you get with Live from Long Island is perhaps the last time this band, which cut its teeth in smaller theaters, brings that small house, hungry, up-and-coming intimacy to an arena show. It's performed for a hometown crowd, which undoubtedly drove the energy up even higher, and it's caught on pro cameras, edited for maximum effect. So, if you're looking for a perfect document of Billy and his band, their peak. This is your best bet.
0: It really is. I remember first watching this on a VHS tape myself uh, at the local video store in Michigan. Um, Friday night, it was a tradition to get a pizza and rent a movie. Mm -hmm. And I remember spotting this videotape on the shelf in probably 84 or 85 once it finally got to the uh, home movie release. And I couldn't believe I saw something by Billy Joel. And so I remember bringing it home. And Having never seen the band live, you know, this was before the age of YouTube, so I had no idea what these guys looked like on stage, what they sounded like Mm -hmm. on stage and things like that, aside from the songs in the attic album. So this was my first visual of a Billy Joel concert, and I remember putting it in, and from the get-go, I was absolutely floored. I'm,
1: I'm a latecomer to this. I discovered it a few years ago, uh, just poking around for live videos, and uh, I you know keyed into it on YouTube. Because sadly, and, and somewhat inexplicably, this is out of print. It was never transferred to DVD as far as I can find. Mm-hmm. Um, there's bootlegs out there, but there's no official release. Um, fortunately, at least by now, uh, the Billy Joel Vivo channel um, has released all the videos, but you still have to go from one to the other. So if you don't have YouTube premium, you'll get some ads and, uh, sure. There's an occasional different version, you know, somebody else's video in the middle of it instead of an official release, but it's all there.
0: Yeah. That's always been puzzling to me as well. Uh, I never understood why they didn't do, um, a DVD release of this. Mm -hmm. Again, this was at the tail end of the nylon curtain tour. So when they started doing the deluxe reissues, you know, with piano man, the stranger, the Russian tour, I thought this would have been a perfect companion to the Nylon Curtain if they were ever to reissue that album, but, you know, we're five years or so now from the last Billy Joel reissue, and it's never seen the light of day aside from a track here and there that was on, I think The Stranger had a bonus DVD that had uh, scenes from an Italian restaurant from this show. So there's been a few things here and there, but they've never done a proper digital physical release of this. And it's puzzling because it sounds great and it looks great.
1: Uh, Yeah. It's really a a perfect time capsule and not in a way that makes it seem dated, but you really, it really captures the band at its peak, what they were doing on stage, what it felt like. I think it helps too, that it was an arena because there are people behind the stage and therefore there's no jumbotron. Um, And so it automatically always feels a little more intimate that way mm-hmm. because there's not a giant screen behind you kind of taking up your attention. Right. And so it, it relies a lot more on lighting. You can see uh, the ramp where players can go behind the drum set and, and play to the people behind the stage, things like that. Which when you go to a show like that is, is always a treat when you're behind the stage because you're close, but you're behind them. But yeah. People come by and say hi and it feels great.
0: Right. And there's there's some bands who don't, If they're playing to a full house like that with the behind the stage open, a lot of bands don't really play to the back. It's understandable. It's not easy to face away from 90% of the crowd just to cater to who's (laughs) behind you. But on this show, I really feel like behind the stage, it gets a really good show as well. Yeah. And as I've been thinking about this, the Nylon Curtain tour was the second full tour doing arenas so glass houses is really when they made the transition i think from the big theaters on the stranger tour to the arenas Mm. and the coliseums so on the glass houses run yeah one you were starting to get songs that were geared towards the big arena rock shows so you had that going on right and then you had the glass houses tour which gave them a chance to really cut their teeth and figure out how they are going to do a live show in this bigger setting. And so by the time you get to the nylon curtain album, they're really just firing on all cylinders and really have transitioned into a powerhouse of an arena band.
1: Yeah. And uh, as we go through the songs, you'll really see that come out on that back half of the, of the set list, which is something we spoke about, I think on our first episode, just how well Billy sequences these shows where it's a series of set pieces and then, as he reaches the climax or the conclusion of it, he just amps it up and it's just rocker after rocker after rocker and the crowds on their feet and everybody's excited and he just leaves you in a frenzy.
0: Yeah, he really does. I love the set list on this. And I never knew until recently that a few songs were completely cut right from this show. You had Goodnight night. Saigon got completely cut. Don't ask me why she's always a woman and Stiletto, completely cut out of this. Now, I know it was done originally for an HBO presentation, but the home movie release stayed at 80 minutes long, and so we never got to see the rest of this show, which is a pity because, you know, I'm sure some of the stage banter and things like that got cut for time as well, so I would love to see everything in full context as it originally was performed.
1: Right, and having seen Billy at Nassau Coliseum, that was my first show on the River of Dreams tour. Well, that was my first Billy show. Uh, and then comparing it to the three times I've seen him in Philadelphia, they've all been great shows, but he does not talk as much as he does at Nassau Coliseum. And it's really fantastic. It's so loose. There's so many jokes flying by. Yeah. It's very conversational. And it's it's a different experience. So I'm sure there's a lot of great banter on the cutting room floor somewhere.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, the different thing with a home movie when you're seeing this you know, you're seeing the editor's choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be seeing a shot of, you know, David Brown and Russell doing this guitar thing, but, you know, off to the side, Mark Rivera could be doing something kind of interesting that I've never seen because the shot they used was on David and Russell, you know, so.
1: Yeah, and especially bringing up Mark Rivera because he is so animated on this show. It's, It's really funny. When you watch later... Videos and concerts, you see him doing it too. But this is, I'm gonna have to say, his first time front and center, really hamming it up in a in a real pleasing way. It doesn't look contrived. It doesn't look like too much. I mean, I'm sure the motions are exaggerated because you're on an arena stage. Yeah. But he plays it very well. He's pointing at people. He's smiling. He's singing. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah.
0: He was kind of the hype man, so to speak. You know, Billy is behind the mm. piano most of the time. So he, and this was. Probably one of the first tours where the sax player used a wireless mic setup, where his saxophone was mic wirelessly. So yeah, you know, I know a lot of the early '80s, late '70s stuff I've seen with Richie Cannata. The mic is stationary, so when he's playing, he's in one spot. Yeah. So on this arena tour with the Nylon Curtain tour, Mark Rivera has free range to go anywhere and everywhere. And like you said, he really works that stage. And this being the first tour with Billy Joel that he did, it gave a different energy and a different vibe with him hamming it up mm-hmm. and really, really getting into it and bringing the crowd into it and the whole bit. Yeah. And what's also
1: um, sort of conversely on great display is the sort of understated swagger of that core. Uh, Lords of 52nd Street Band, the way you see David Brown and Russell work together, you know, a lot of times they're moving in sync, but it, it doesn't look choreographed. That's just, you know, how many years and, and how many dates together that they're just moving in sync. Yeah. The way Liberty moves, the way Doug walks around to him. Yeah. Um, I love watching Doug Stegmeier in this video, too, because he's always... Such a bit of a loner on stage, but he's right. so into it. Until he decides to walk up and engage someone, and then he comes back to his own space. And
0: then he gets back into the pocket and is kind of laying back, but yeah, holding the foundation down. Of the, you know, he's just the glue that holds it all together.
1: And this video definitely benefits from uh, some end of the tour energy. You, you can always tell when the band's been playing these songs for a while. Because they're always a tick faster, but mm-hmm. they're just so confident because they're rolling off the cuff at this point. So they were coming off uh, a 32-show run, with the last one being, the 34th being New Year's Eve. Yeah, so just two nights later. These guys have been blasting these songs out 32 times. Um, and when you get to that point, and especially when you're playing for all your friends in the audience, the energy's there. It's, it's just so easy to play these songs. You've, you're so confident, you're able to play with them a little, you're able to really sit back and enjoy the moment, probably a lot more than the beginning when you're getting used to the stage or the tech or, or just the tour itself.
0: And with these guys firing on all cylinders, you know, you had four or five songs that were performed from the Nylon Curtain, which was the new album at the time, while sounding super fresh and having such energy, those songs sound so tight live already that you feel like they've been playing them for a while, but they still sound fresh, but they sound so good.
1: They really do. And this is something I'd like to talk about a little later when we get to a few of these songs. But the way they were able to take an album that was such a studio-crafted album and make it sound good live was also a testament to, to the arrangements and what this band was able to do. Sometimes when you get an album that has a lot of effects on it and a lot of layering, you can't make it sound good live without backing tracks or without 20 people on stage or something crazy. And they really pulled it off here.
0: They really did. Honestly, from here on out, this was probably Billy's smallest band. Yeah. How many guys on stage were there? There were seven in all. Yeah, seven.
1: And yeah, and then the Innocent Mantor was seven plus a brass section and, and backup singers.
0: Yeah, George and Frank Sims, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you had like probably, yeah, 12, 13, 14 people on stage then. Yeah.
1: Even now it's nine people, but it's 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 much more layered, I think. Yeah. Um. And so it's not that it doesn't have that lean feel Mm -hmm. as it does in uh, Live life from long Island.
0: Yeah. Now this tour though, is when things expanded a little bit because after the glass houses run and the songs in the attic shows, Richie could not have left the band and he played organ and saxophones on the records and the live shows. And when he left that created a gap that ended up being filled by two people. You had Mark Rivera on sax and Dave LeBolt on keyboards. Mark, To my knowledge, isn't a keyboard player and Billy started writing songs that were much more geared towards arenas and different synthesizers and less just straight piano. So as you were saying, there was a lot of these songs had a lot more layers and textures that really needed a guy who just specialized in that. That's when you had one guy replaced with two on this run. Right, which opened up
1: a little more for them to do on stage.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking then it's also the first
1: tour world where Billy didn't have the mini Moog on his right side. Even when you go to the Songs in the Attic videos, in particular the Sparks black and white videos, you see that trusty Minimoog right next to him um, yeah. that he would play on a few songs. And mm-hmm. that's gone here now that he's got Dave LeBolt in the back with a small armada of keyboards able to, to pick up all those parts for him.
0: You know, I never noticed it until you mentioned it just now. But you're right. This is the first tour where he didn't have that next to his piano there. Hmm. Good catch. Thank you. <laughs> So while we were gearing up for this episode, I started digging around to see what else I could find on this that I haven't already seen or listened to or watched. And I came across a New York Times article that was dated July 22, 1983, which was the week it aired on HBO. So this is a New York Times preview of the Live From Long Island concert special. So the headline is TV Weekend, Billy Joel in taped concert on HBO. And this was written by a John O'Connor. Here's the article the big special this weekend on home box office the pay cable channel is the premiere of Billy Joel in concert Taped at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island at the close of a 36 city tour of the United States This is the first solo televised appearance for Mr. Joel and his band and it could be seen Sunday at 8 p.m Mr. Joel is something of a perplexing performer Especially for those who prefer the more hard-edged rock of say Bruce Springsteen A native of Hicksville, Long Island, Mr. Joel has, over the last 12 years, won a parcel of Grammy Awards and posted sales of some 35 million albums. His songs range from ballads to driving rock and a kind of patter routine speaking to the anxieties of growing up in suburbia. He can be surprising, no more so than when he turned out to be the smash hit of an American concert in Cuba a couple of years ago. Like Neil Sadaka, Mr. Joel does not look like a pop rocker. He's not pretty or prepossessing. He wears a tie and is partial to sports jackets that have an air of squareness about them. But then, as at this concert, there's always the unusual detail. He's wearing white sneakers. He gives the feeling that he is never completely what he seems. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, that's a great detail to, to key into. And it was my favorite paragraph in this article.
0: Yeah, I thought so too. They were really keying in on something here. Huh. And then it concludes, The session, cheered on throughout by an unflaggingly enthusiastic audience, opens with Allentown, a recent composition about youthful years with fathers who served in the World War II and summer visits to the Jersey Shore. For the first several numbers, Mr. Joel sits at the piano, playing and singing with verve, but with kind of a distance that the audience usually associates with Perry Como. With Pressure, however, one of his latest hits, He gets up and begins moving slowly about the stage. He and his musicians even use stage props at times. Scenes from an Italian restaurant provides an exercise to open a bottle of wine for onstage consumption. Naturally, Mr. Joel gets to sing the ballad Just the Way You Are, one of his biggest hits. And the pacing of the show keeps accelerating with numbers like It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, Big Shot, and Only the Good Die Young. By the end of the set... The distance between the performer and his material has just about disappeared completely. As with astonishing energy, he works the house with all the mastery of a Mick Jagger. Directed by Jay Dubin for television, this is a super show. A good deal of the credit must also go to the musicians, especially Mark Rivera, the saxophonist, who is energetic and expressive that... At times, he comes close to stealing the spotlight from the star, but Mr. Joel remains carefully in control. And in the process, it's quite impressive. The concert is being simulcast in stereo over WNEW-FM.
1: And so, for the record, let's let's just point out that the critics were sometimes kind to Billy.
0: They were. He's never <laughs> been a darling with the critics, but this guy, this preview, is pretty on point. Uh, we took a lot of notes and talked about it a bit before I ever came across this article. And there's a lot of points that he hits on here, which are right in line with a lot of my thoughts and what I was uncovering going through this again. So without further ado then, let's just jump into these songs.
1: (laughs) So the show opens with Allentown great opener it's a new song so it's fresh for everyone Um, the one thing I really noticed on this one it's really nice hearing Doug way up in the mix and really seeing how that bass line drives that song on the record the acoustic guitar is so much more prominent and I think that was something they couldn't quite replicate yet live just because of this you know the studio treatment of it And so hearing Doug a little further up really put him in the forefront in a very nice way.
0: Yeah, it gives it a different punch than the the album version has for sure. Right. One thing I noticed too at the very beginning is Liberty's drum riser moves. You don't really notice it throughout the whole show, but the entire show opens with a shot from behind Liberty as his drum kit is moving and rotating to face out front. And then it kind of gets into place, but that's the only time you really notice it. And watching throughout the night, his kit is faced slightly in different directions throughout the night so it does rotate but that's the only time you actually see it moving around and so it caught my eye it kind of startled me i was like oh i guess that drum riser moves (laughs) and i think this was one of the tours that had where he was starting to really get into big stage production and having things like that that Mm -hmm. he didn't have prior on the class houses tour
1: right and can we talk for a moment about just how awesome liberty set looks in this video
0: That was a monster kit, man. (laughs) Four rack toms up up top, two floor toms. And that snare drum just has such a punch and cuts to the mix. Yeah, I love that drum kit. I think those were Tama Imperial Stars, I want to say. I think he was playing Tama,
1: yeah. In the 80s, or later in the 80s, he had a set, he had a rack set, which looked really 80s. And I didn't like the look of that as much, but that thing is like... That's almost like a Carl Palmer set, you know, (laughs) just has that, that that to it. And he doesn't use that many symbols too, which is funny because he's, he's a big Tom's guy, but he doesn't, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have an an enormous amount of symbols and they, I I don't know why they just look so nice and shiny. I'm going to guess they're Zildjians. Did he play Zildjian?
0: He played Zildjian's through the bridge tour before, and then he switched over to Sabian. So those I'm pretty positive are Zildjian's, but they may, but they may have removed the um, logo. I, that's what the I logos. noticed.
1: They almost make them look like Pisces because they were just so shiny. Um, without yeah. The, without and clean looking.
0: On. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, I think at the time he used Zildjian, but didn't have a deal. Okay. I, I'm not totally sure on that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times what you'll see is if, you know, a live show is filmed and released. If an artist is using a certain piece of gear that they don't endorse They'll either wipe the logo clean or put a piece of tape over the logo to have it blend in, so it's like you really know what they're playing, but they don't display the logo. Yeah, and so I'm thinking with the symbols, it was it was Zildjian,
1: right? But yeah, it just looks great, and because he's so tall, he can he can get on top of a kit like that and make it seem mm-hmm. small almost. Uh, you know, you see like Phil Collins on those old kits, and he's just surrounded by them, but you know lives on top of them, and he's got those you know. He's got those trademark uh, black dot drum heads that he used. But interestingly, his floor toms are coated. So for those of Mm -hmm. you that aren't drummers, um, when you see those black dots, the clear drum heads with the black dots, it's a much more controlled sound. It doesn't ring out as much. And that's a lot. When you listen to those records, the the drum sound is very tight. And uh, for contrast, you could go to Zeppelin, which has a lot of resonance or you can go to uh, Jimi Hendrix, which had more of a jazz sound, so they're they're tune type, but they have like more of a I don't want to say trash can. How would you describe that? That really higher jazz tuning.
0: Yeah, it's a little tighter, a little high end, and it just doesn't it just doesn't ring out and it's not as boomy as like like you say, like a uh, John Bonham type of sound.
1: Right. So those blackheads are pretty quintessential seventies. And then when you look yeah. at his floor toms though, he's got coated heads, which you see more mm-hmm um in jazz and also gives you more warmth and reverberation and it, it is interesting yeah. to see a drum set with um that kind co- you know a different combination of heads usually they go for one type of head all the way through but it probably yeah. has something to do too i think with just the way he plays the top toms and then bottoms out to the floor that it just
0: it rounds it out very nicely i'm sure an intentional oh, move on, on yeah on his or his drum techs part, mm-hmm. but mixing them up like that, like you said, having the black dots for the for the rack toms and the, the coated for the floor tom, it still gave it a really, top to bottom, a really nice balanced sound all the way around. And so looking
1: again at Allentown itself, the other thing I noticed about this is that tempo is definitely up a tick or two from the record. Mm-hmm. And I would, yeah. a, I would ascribe that both again to being at the end of the tour, also being the first song, mm-hmm. you're probably pretty jazzed about getting out there. But I think this mm-hmm. one live works well just a little faster. I, I've played this one live. And if you do it at the record speed, it doesn't really translate the way you think it's going to. This is one that, that benefits.
0: Yeah. And I feel like it's like it's like that for a lot of songs live. I think a lot of songs live, if you play them at the album Tempo j- feel like they're dragging, even right. if they're not at all. And so it makes sense to push things a tick or two faster just to give a little more bounce and a little more energy. Yeah. And with Liberty driving the tempos, he sometimes would even tick it up a couple more notches <laughs> and just where it's not quite frantic, but just has just this driving quick energy just to make it work live. And then so Mark Rivera makes his
1: debut on film, I guess you would say on the big steel bar through the whole song which is a great effect it is and uh, you know just a great example of splitting up parts amongst people to make sure it it all sounds right and utilizing all seven people on stage
0: you mentioned that steel pipe that mark is playing and you actually do hear in the mix because he's close enough to his microphone his vocal mic to hear it fast forward five years to the russian tour in 87 where allentown was a staple of that tour as well uh-huh. he's playing one as well but it is just beat to hell in the <laughs> middle and just bent and contorted i've always wondered if it's the same one that he was using back in 82 yeah but you just have five years of smacking <laughs> it every night <laughs> all right. during allentown it just got all distorted and all bent up and everything like that but it just kind of gave it some characters so they just kept using the same one i don't know
1: Yeah, maybe it's even the superstition thing, you know, like you don't change your socks (laughs) from from basketball game to basketball game. (laughs) You got to use that same steel bar, man. You'll never get that sound out of another one.
0: (laughs) So Allentown leads into My Life here, and that's the same as the actual full concert sequence. But they chopped off the little intro bit at the beginning of My Life. It's kind of an abrupt lead in on the live film here. Yeah. But usually if you see Billy do My Life live, he does a little bit of a jam Leaning into it where Liberty goes into the groove, Billy starts playing and he'll, they'll go into a riff or a song here or there and they'll just noodle around for a couple bars before going into the tune. And I'm pretty sure that that's what actually went on there, but they just lopped it off and went right into the song here.
1: Right. One deviation you hear from the album on this is Mark playing soprano sax and playing the riff at the beginning along with the other instruments that's not on the record there's no horn at the beginning of that one.
0: Oh, oh you're right mm-hmm. yeah and it's a little more up front in the mix than in the soprano because the soprano is later on the song right on the recording but it's a little lower in the mix and mark is nice and up front here it gives it an interesting attack yeah One thing I noticed these last couple viewings of it is Billy holds up his hand and does a countdown during the don't, 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 don't you get me wrong. And you'll see him hold up four fingers and he'll just count them down as he goes through the don't, just kind of giving a band a visual cue of what he's doing so they can kind of work with his vocal and do kind of a little bit of a variant there.
1: Yeah, and it's a good example of in a show that's pretty tight. Moments where there's a bit of improv or a bit of mm-hmm. a bit of something going on on stage that maybe didn't happen the night before, maybe not, maybe won't happen the next night, but just happened this time. And also a testament to you know when you've been playing the show this many times, you get to have a little fun with that. We don't know if that was an in joke, if that was something he does differently every night, what exactly that was, but it was definitely a moment, and it's what makes videos like this really fun.
0: It does, and I noticed with Billy doing that countdown during the, you know, the four don't, 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 don't. You get me wrong. Liberty, in turn, was doing an accent on the hi hat to just kind of dig into that syncopation that Billy was doing. So, like you said, it created a moment. And these guys had been playing together so long and were so tight that they could, they could do stuff off the cuff like that. They were so in tune to each other and what each other could do and would do that they. They could roll off stuff like that just on the spur of the moment, and it's sounded really cool. Yeah. And then from there, we get into a really high-energy rendition of
1: Angry Young Man. This was his opener for a long time. Third in the set, it's almost like a second opener. It just kicks the energy right back up from a good, groovy, mid-tempo my life.
0: energy out of the gate and because it's such a visual thing seeing him play this intro that it it sets the tone for that song and this time around there's uh there's an
1: extra added challenge to this if you look closely you're going to see a bandage on billy's left thumb
0: yeah earlier in 1982 here while they were making the nylon curtain record billy got into a really bad motorcycle accident I mean, it was bad. Like, he didn't know if he was going to be playing piano again. It was, he had messed up his hands that bad. And you can see still some of the after effects. Like, physically, his hands looked okay aside from the bandage on his thumb. But, you know, you see him shaking out his hands throughout the night here and there just to kind of loosen them back up. And But throughout the entire show, you do see one bandage still on his hand. He
1: had pins temporarily, I believe, in his wrists that
0: they took yeah. out. Yeah. So it was some serious stuff. And for someone who relies on his hands and plays a very physical show as a piano player, that's pretty impressive that it really didn't slow him up for very long, but just looking at it, I'm like, how are his hands not just absolutely killing him at the end of this? Cause I mean, it's such, if your hands are fine, it <laughs> would be a physically demanding song to play, but man, right. I don't know how he did it.
1: Yeah. It's funny. He adds that extra riff, um, on the last, On the end of the uh, song, he adds this uh, little extra melodic thing at the end. Which you hear on subsequent tours, too. And it was Mm -hmm. funny because when I was watching this one, he does a little stagecraft move where he throws his left hand behind his back. And just jackhammers with his right hand, and originally I thought, I wonder if he's giving his left hand a break, like he's trying to stretch it out. But if you look at shows from 1984 and on, you'll see him do the same move. So I guess that was just a a motion, just to show people his right hand, maybe, or you know, a little thing. (laughs) Because it is, yeah, it's blurry on the video. (laughs) Yeah, it is. He's He's going fast fast enough for sure. And again, you know, this is one where Dave LeBolt is playing the the synthesizer parts rather than Billy. Um, And also, of course, you know, the organ parts that that Richie used to play too. So that's Mm -hmm. all filled out there very nicely.
0: And then there's that harmonica part too. I don't even have that in my notes, but it just popped into my head. Oh yeah. At this time, Russell Javers was handling the harmonica parts on anything that wasn't Piano Man. Right. Um, So he plays just, it's not a very long part, but it's just that one little harmonica riff right there early in the song, but it's just such a nice clean harmonica tone. That's just yeah. what caught my ear about it
2: Yeah,
1: and you know again, that's sort of the beauty of this band, you know, it's seven pieces which by rock standards is a little big but mm-hmm. The fact is they were able to shuffle around instruments enough and somebody's going to pick up harmonica and somebody's going to pick up uh, some percussion and things like that that or a pipe. You <laughs> or a pipe, yeah. <laughs> 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 that you can you can get all those little effects in without without a feeling labored, without seeing what looks like a small orchestra on stage. Even though there's seven people, it doesn't feel like there's seven people. I mean, Dave LeBault's a bit in the background for the most part Right, because yeah. he seems to be playing a bit of a hired gun role in this time, yes. more than everyone else who's the band. Mm-hmm. But even still, you know, having six people spotlighted, plus a seventh in yeah. the background, it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it, but they do shuffle around those instruments, and the harmonica is a great example.
0: And that goes back to, too, how they, well they played together, their whole yeah. mission was to service the song and service what Billy was doing on the vocal and on the piano. So these guys all incredible players, but nobody overplayed. Right. They they serve the song. So it sounds clean, even with seven guys on the stage. It's just super clean because they're not playing just to play. They're playing yeah. exactly what the song needs and maybe giving it a little bit extra because it's a live show and giving it a little bit more show. But it's still super tight. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And one other thing that I like too, I know you had mentioned it a while back when we were talking, is that alternate melody going on. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, the bridge there.
1: Yeah, it, I, I don't know how to describe it. You'll hear it. When you hear it, you'll hear it. I'm certainly not going to try to sing it. But occasionally he throws things in like that where the melody goes a little higher, uh, just for a one part. It's got a real, real pleasing sound to it. It's not bluesy or yeah. raucous or anything. It's just real
2: pretty and just really good. I always believed in the as too.
1: Yeah, I love um, little, like on uh, on the the Russian live album, he he does a little bit of vocalizing on yeah the beginning of it, that that's not on this record. But you know these little things that get added to the songs over time, they're always charming. And you know when you when you go back and you realize how many times Billy does do a lot of little vocalizations in songs, mm-hmm. on the interludes and in sometimes a fantasy, and she's right on time in Big Shot, just a couple offhand. You know, it makes sense that he's throwing these
0: little bits in uh, in concert as well. And my gut tells me that part of it is to just entertain themselves because they're playing these songs every night and you really it's easy to get bored. As crazy as that sounds, these are all great songs and we all love them. But if you're up there on stage playing the same 18, 20 songs, whatever, every night, you're going to get bored with it. I don't care Mm -hmm. how great the song is. So you're going to want to switch things up and have fun with the arrangements just if nothing more to amuse yourself and to keep yourself Mm -hmm. interested.
1: Yeah. We call it creep
0: sometimes. Yeah. When you creep away from
1: the studio version and then you go back and listen to it and you say to yourself, wow, I'm doing a lot of things
0: differently nowadays. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So next on the show is Piano Man. And one thing I love about this is that it's early in the show. Yeah. After the never happens now. (laughs) No, after the bridge tour, it's either been the last song or right near or in the middle of the encore. It's, it's been within the last four songs of the night. But here we are four mm-hmm. songs in and he's just going right into it. And I, I love that. And it, it just has an energy that I haven't heard out of that song lately. I don't know what it is, but I, I just love the, the bounce of that song. And he starts it out by himself. The band doesn't kick in for a little while. Yeah. It's also
1: nice to see uh, Dave and Russell on acoustics doing that those movements in tandem with each other. Um, another example of things that don't look choreographed but you feel that they settled into that over time mm-hmm. that they just their movements just moved to each other the more they played together yeah and I
0: think it's just the comfort they've been playing together so long that it just was a natural the, how the music moved them and that's that's really great in my opinion
1: you know as I'm thinking about it now when you watch Russell play guitar, he's got this very unique shoulder movement and he kind of rolls around as he strums yeah. And, and I think that that really affects, he's kind of rolling like really his left shoulder how into
0: he it. Yeah. It. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and when you think about, you know, how integral, you know, those acoustic parts, even though they're nothing flashy, how integral they were, I'm pretty sure that groove came in part from that very unique motion that he makes something. It seems that he developed, may have developed himself.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good observation there. I really like that, the kind of jazzy, funky little bit going on in the uh, the piano solo spot. Yeah. It kind of gives it a little pop, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, it gets a little funky there. I I believe I've heard versions where they go a little jazzier mm-hmm. and they'll swing it a bit. Yeah. Um, and so it's nice hearing that, that different sound. Almost seems like in, in 1983, it seems like a, a remnant of the late 70s. A remnant of a Steely Dan, Steve Gad. Yeah, I could hear you know, that. Yeah, Paul Simon kind of feel. Well, not Paul Simon as much, but definitely Steely Dan. Yeah, you know.
0: And you, you hear Doug Stagmeyer's bass popping a little bit there. It's, I love it.
1: Yeah. Oh, if you ever get a chance, listen to some isolated Doug
0: bass lines. They are so muscular and so good. So after Piano Man, they do skip one song on the concert video in this spot, and that's Don't Ask Me Why. So don't ask me why it's not there. I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. I'd love to hear how it sounded, but uh, yeah, that didn't make the cut of it. So here they go into The Stranger, which I just love.
1: This is a great version of this. It really is. There's a little more. There's a little more punch. There's a little more funk in the performance here. Yep. Um, a couple extra notes and some really good spots. Mm-hmm. We were talking before about how a lot of these songs are a little faster. This one feels just a hair slower
0: than the album. I think it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing that you don't notice on the recording that you can only see watching it visually is the verses how percussive the piano part is. Billy is just right. like, it's almost like he's just, air, he's just air drumming at the keyboard, throwing his <laughs> hands down, playing a like a drum part. It's it's just really wild to watch and trying to pair that in your head with what you're hearing, it kind of gives it that kind of funky little pop.
1: It does. If you've ever seen old Marx Brothers movies and you see Chico Marx shooting the piano where he would just like make a gun with his two fingers and, and throw his finger down and hit the exact right key. Yeah. Um that's what, sort of what it reminded me of. And that's that is not easy. And it's you know, again a testament to how good this band was and how good he was and how long they were on the road that he's pulling those hijinks knowing that he's getting recorded for HBO. Right. Like, there's no take back no. on
0: that. <laughs> the the band going back to how intuitive they were and just how they played off each other, it's really great how they're all just on the same page.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a great song to check out a lot of funky breaks and really go back and listen for those a lot of stuff that's not on the album yes a lot of stuff that is not easy to pull off live Mm -hmm. um really fun really really satisfying to hear yeah how they would do those really syncopated and odd stops
0: and you know what a lot of people don't give billy credit for here is the whistling that is hard oh oh yeah yeah
1: Go ahead, try to hit that high
0: note. Oh, it's, forget it. I mean, it's not in there. <laughs> and his whistle is so controlled and the tone is so clear. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm blown away. But in true Billy Joel band fashion, I've read stories about how the guys used to love to mess with him during this song. <laughs> so they started doing this game of make Billy laugh. They wanted to screw him <laughs> up and make him laugh while he's trying to whistle. So Billy tells the story how like one night they decided to like all black out their teeth (laughs) until he was getting to like one of those big high moments in the whistling intro. Then they all turn to him. Light hits the band and they've got all blacked out teeth and they would just (laughs) just shoot this grin at him and just get him to break.
1: (laughs) That is the most random thing. It's great. (laughs) So after that, we get into Scandinavian Skies. And this is an interesting one. It's certainly not one you hear a lot in concert anymore. And by virtue of the fact that this was the Nylon Curtain Tour, this one was prominent in the set list. It
0: wasn't buried anywhere. Um, And it was a unique choice, I would say, because this was not one of the singles. Mm -hmm. And I think... But it's a great song live, and it I didn't think it would be.
1: Yeah, of all the songs on that album, I figure this would be the hardest one to recreate. There's a lot of flanger. There's a lot of late Beatles sounding mm-hmm. studio effects on there.
2: One
0: thing that caught my ear right at the top, though, is after he greets the crowd, he talks about we got a new album out called Ni- The Nylon Curtain, and I'm like, wow. Uh-huh. Th- it is old. <laughs> I forget that it's that old, but to hear him yeah. talking about The Nylon Curtain as a new album just kind of blew my mind for a minute there and you know talking about how a lot of bands like to you know dump a lot of the new songs on them you know when they got a new album out and right you know they aren't going to do that but they wanted to he wanted to do this one which is he calls it one of the weirder ones on the album yeah and he's not wrong no he's not (laughs) um some of you know we got a new album out called an island curtain But, uh, we're not gonna dump
1: the whole album on you in know, one shot like a lot, of, you know, see a lot of times. Cause I know you'll be sitting there going,
0: "Yeah, that's cool. What about the old stuff?" You know what I mean, right? so.
2: so
1: we're just gonna do, we'll do some of it. We have it, you know, we have it spaced throughout the set for maximum effect, you know, that kind of. Thing. Anyway, this one is—I guess this is the weirdest one off the new album. This is called uh,
2: "Scandinavian Skies."
1: And what you watch for on this one, because we were talking about how you have a seven-piece band and you can play all these parts. Yeah. This is a song with a lot of layers on it in the studio. And yet, live, he takes two of those players and he has them both playing snare drum. Yeah. There's not a single uh, David Russell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And first of all, these guys are perfectly in sync yeah. with two snare drums and then Liberty behind them. Yep. Yeah. And that put a lot of... The spotlight, so to speak, on Dave LeBault handling a lot of those sound effects. I think only at one point in the middle of the song does something sound like it was odd or a tape playing back. Uh Other than that, you, you really get to feel that he's playing everything right there. If you told me he had a Mellotron on stage, I would believe you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I never noticed on the recording that there weren't any guitars on it either. It just didn't cross my mind because... The song is so layered with keyboards and different effects and things like that. It just didn't occur to me. Yeah. It was a cool choice, though. Instead of just having Russell and David go off stage during the song, let's give them a little something different that's that makes that performance unique and that gives a whole new visual element. There's also a
1: great choreographed moment where they throw their hands out at the same time.
0: Yeah, I noticed that, too. I can just picture them backstage kind of going through it to the tape and saying, okay, now we do it here. Cause I have a feeling this was just like the choreograph stuff was just something that the two of them cooked up.
1: Yeah. it does. It, These seem like, you know, I doubt there was a big production meeting right, where they're like, exactly. okay. And three and a four, you know, um, it actually reminds me of uh, Genesis in 1982. when they used to do Abacab uh, when Chester and Phil were on the drums uh, for the song Abacab at the end, mm-hmm. they would throw their whatever hand. I guess they would throw their left hands out at the same time. Ba-da-bop-pop, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I I wonder if they were aware of that at the time. Obviously, this stuff wasn't out on YouTube. If they caught somehow caught Genesis in the middle of uh, their tours and things like that. Yeah. But that was a a similar move with two drummers. Have you ever heard, it came out a few years ago, the outtakes of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and I believe it came out along with the last reissue of Sgt. Pepper's.
0: I think I did hear
1: some of it. And what I, what I found it interesting about that in relation especially to Scandinavian skies is, especially for Sgt. Pepper, y- you almost tend to chalk up a lot of what happened to studio weirdness. You know that they were experimenting and doing a lot of things. Yeah. And then when you hear this raw take, you realize, for instance, one of those really thunderous parts. That's not anything really weird. That's just an amazingly dirty chord on a harpsichord that it's tonal it's not a timbre thing right and you realize that in Scandinavian skies it's the same thing Mm -hmm. you know so much of the nylon curtain sometimes we chalk up to wow man they really use the studio as an instrument yeah and when you pare it down and you do it live and you take away your two guitar players Mm -hmm. and you realize how good the arrangement is and how good the the song at the core of it is this is a great example of that
0: it is and I think he was probably going into that Nylon Curtain record, even though he wanted to make a very layered and textured record. I think I wouldn't surprise me if in the back of his mind, he's like, how are these going to sound live? How am I going to do these live? Yeah. And so, you know, so, but to be able to take, like you said, that, that tells you how good a song is, is if, if you can have this crazy production and do all these crazy things in the studio and in the record, And then you can go out on a stage with seven guys and not have all those studio bells and whistles and still have it sound killer. Or somebody can Mm -hmm. get up there with an acoustic guitar and play it. And it still is a great sounding song. Well, then it's just a great song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a shame because this is an overlooked Gemini's catalog as
0: is. So it's nice that it gets a spotlight here. It is. And I think it's probably the only one that's directly about heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's notably that.
1: And, uh, In true Billy Joel sort of square fashion, you know, the idea behind it is I tried it once. It was horrible. I'm not doing that again. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, this this ain't Keith Richards, man. Right. (laughs) So after Scandinavian Skies, we go into a classic, which five years in is probably already a classic in his set. Uh, We're talking moving out. Oh, yeah. Nice
1: boogie woogie piano intro. He does this a few times during this concert. He just throws in... He did a little bit of a nutcracker right before Scandinavian Skies. He does like a little rock and roll thing Mm -hmm. right before moving out starts. (laughs) ¶¶
0: One thing I love about this as well is the beginning of the tune, where they just start get, kind of getting into it. Is you see what I believe is Chainsaw Ricky Lapointe, who everyone knows now as the guitar tech, and he's the mm-hmm. one who goes on stage and sings "Highway to Hell" at Billy shows these days. But back in the <laughs> yeah. '80s, he started with Billy's band as a truck driver. So I'm pretty sure this is Chainsaw. But anyway, you see him walking. Across the stage, holding a bag of groceries, (laughs) wearing a Billy Joel shirt, just kind of walking across the stage like he's (laughs) moving out or I don't know what the visual is supposed to represent. But I feel like that's something grocery store. (laughs) Right. It's him leaving the grocery store. So Chainsaw's Anthony here. But I think it's something, too, that they don't (laughs) tell Billy about. It's something that they just kind of thought would be funny to do. Cause you see him walking across the stage and then they kind (laughs) of cut to a shot of Billy and you see this supernatural grin on his face. Like he just saw what was happening and he's like, Oh, that's great. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, again, just a little charm of, of watching a live show.
0: And moving out as well. This is another one that's a a few ticks faster for sure. But Yeah, yeah, this one always sounds good faster. Yeah, it does. This is before they were doing the dual sax that they do now on this song. So it's just the single Marco Vera sax part, which I think sounds great.
1: Mm-hmm. So next is Pressure, uh, another one from the then-new album, The Nylon Curtain. And what I noticed about this one is, where I mentioned for Scandinavian Skies that they did a really good job recreating the vibe of the album, Pressure, in contrast, sounds great, but... It sounds very different from the album. It sounds a little more raw. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound quite as polished or layered.
0: Yeah. And this is the first time that Billy actually moves away from the piano during the show. He moves over to an electric piano, which is made by Yamaha. It's called the CP-80. It's got this pretty Mm -hmm. raw percussive sound that he used a ton back then it's all over the glass house's album like all for lena right so he moves over to mm-hmm. a, a little pedestal i think it's near the back of the stage where the cp-80 is set up and um that's where he jumps into pressure on this one so it gives him another kind of prop too to get animated with so he's he's yeah. standing up now for the first time even though he's at a keyboard and uh he he moves around quite a bit during this song i remember
1: yeah, because I remember when I saw him at the Nassau Coliseum in '93, the CP80 was set up almost to the back of the stage again, because without the jumbotron, people were sitting behind the stage, and he could run around to them, and uh, and he would, you know, it was, it was that moment where he would make that grand run across the stage for
0: for great effect, go up the platform and play it, and he does that here. And this is the same keyboard if you guys remember the the Russian tour, the famous incident where he flipped over the piano and stormed downstage and <laughs> the CP eighty is the same uh keyboard that he smashed in Russia. So it's it's that same that same piano. There's also a great
1: moment, Michael, that you, you pointed out here between Doug and Liberty.
0: Yeah, those guys always seemed like brothers to me. I mean the whole the whole band at the time really felt tight, but yeah, you see Doug going over to Liberty and then Liberty starts playing one-handed and puts his other arm on Doug's shoulder and they're just kind of getting a little close and tight and just kind of vibing off each other uh, during the keyboard solo. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's just such a cool moment be- between the two of them just kind of jamming there.
1: Yeah, something that was obviously captured. Again, something obviously not choreographed.
0: No, super organic. Super organic for sure. Yeah.
1: And, you know, speaking again, as a drummer, I'm sure you know as well, you know, we tend to get isolated back there. So
0: it's it's nice sometimes when somebody walks back and says hi. It is, <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you got to realize it's like, you know, you're behind four to seven drums, a bunch of cymbals. And then four yeah. guys in front of you. Yeah, yeah, like you're just looking at butts the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're staring at the lead singer's ass the whole show. So it's nice yeah. when <laughs> someone comes a lot around to give you a little love, and you know Liberty and Doug go back, you know, to Topper back before they played with Billy, and so you know those yeah. guys were such a great rhythm section, and so to see them kind of close to each other sharing a moment like that, I I, I just loved it. It was really nice. I'm I'm glad you pointed that out. It really. Elevated my enjoyment of this one. Oh, right on. So the next one we've got on the show is uh, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, which one of my favorite Billy tunes, and I just love the performance during this show. Yeah, it's a big set piece, um, Mm -hmm. literally (laughs) and musically. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah, so the song starts with with a table and tablecloth set up on the stage. So you see it a couple seconds before the song starts, so you might kind of get an idea of what's coming, but it does create such a cool moment. So you've got this table with a tablecloth, and there's a candle, a bottle of wine, and some glasses, and I think there's even, like, a salami on the table as well. So <laughs> they're trying to give it that, like, Italian restaurant kind of vibe. And so you got yeah. Billy at the piano, and as you know, Scenes starts out with just Billy for the first good chunk of the song. And so Mm -hmm. the band is all standing around this table um, pouring glasses of wine and all this stuff. And then, I don't know if this was planned or just the way it worked out, but they get to the perfect moment in the song where Billy sings we'll get a table near the street and at that time, everyone in the band toasts the crowd. They lift their glasses. Liberty's got the wine bottle but they all lift their glasses (laughs) and toast the audience. And then you just hear the crowd just just go crazy! Such a great moment. Yeah, and then and then you see Russell put a glass on Billy's piano, and then they all go back to their positions to come in. But I I just love that part.
1: Yeah, it was really nice. You also caught a, a bit of a gaff in there in the in the uh, fast part.
0: Oh yeah, where he's <laughs> like, engineer booths, leather jackets, and something else. I still don't know exactly what he says. Every time I hear it, I yeah. think it's something different. But then. He mouths something to Liberty. I don't know if it's like <laughs> I know what I said, or I don't know what he did, but he's mouthing something. I'm pretty sure, directly referencing the screw up. So I thought that <laughs> I thought that was funny. You know, I love, I love bands who are incredible and on fire, but it's also fun when they screw up because it just shows yeah. the fun humanness of it.
1: You said I, – I didn't quite catch it, but you said Liberty almost loses his balance or loses his balance on this one.
0: Yeah, so there's a section where um, where it's kind of building and then Billy goes into – it's before the – it's when he goes into the piano thing where he's just almost like the My Life thing where it's – before that little piano huh. solo thing. So Liberty mm-hmm. goes goes in it, and it's like the big downbeat and then he goes – boom. He does this visual motion where he brings his stick up, sticks up over his head and he kind of leans back a little bit and then he starts like, whoa, like I'm, (laughs) and you can see he's like catching his balance before he falls backward, but he, he caught himself and was fine. But I've been there before and it just felt like that moment of panic, like, oh man, I'm about to go over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is going down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It's also a good example. This one of Mark Rivera's uh, stage presence. He's really all over the place on this one.
0: Yeah, he is. He really worked the stage. And, you know, it was really enjoyable to see kind of what Mark brought to the show here. And this scenes was a really good example of it.
1: So from there, we move back into a ballad, uh, Just the Way You Are. Mm -hmm. And they bring out the Fender Rhodes just for this song, it looks like.
0: Yeah, I think so. Because that's the only... The only one, at least in this set, that I can think of that um, uses the Fender Rose. And actually, because once Just the Way You Are wraps up, you can, as he kind of comes off from the platform it's on, you can already see the crew taking it down. Mm-hmm. Like, because these platforms were like the CP80 and the Fender Rose and all that were. Like, when they weren't actively being used, they're off the stage, which is interesting because he, I think he liked to make a lot of use... Of the stage back then, so if that area didn't have a keyboard cluttering it up, so to speak, during a non-keyboard song, he and he was running around. That gave him a platform to sing from, which you see later in the show. Just the way you are is a nice ballad to kind of bring it down a little bit. And it's just kind of a, you know, not a whole lot to really cover on this one. It's a, it's a nice-sounding song. The performance is good. I think Liberty's uh, brushes come across really nice in here. It, brushes don't really translate typically well to an arena thing, but it it sounded nice.
1: On this and Rosalind's eyes, which isn't on this one, but Mm -hmm. Lib uses this interesting technique where he plays a brush in his right hand and he plays with a stick in his left. Mm -hmm. So you get that percussive you know, brushing feel, and you also get the punch of a stick. And along with the brushes, Russell Javer's unique strumming patterns really make the song both their right hands work in tandem so well that it's 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 what really ties these those two songs together and you can really hear it live here. Where especially Lib's left hand gets a little punchy sometimes, but those two right hands are just it's the entire rhythmic foundation of the song. Yeah,
0: it really is. And the the brush hand really kinda of feels like a shaker. Like you said, it's feels it got that percussive thing going throughout the whole thing. And it really works well with with the acoustic guitars that they're doing there. So after Just the Way You Are, looking at the video release versus the concert, for the video release, they actually cut the next three songs in a row. So during the concert, you had Goodnight Saigon, Stiletto, and Until the Night. Now, Stiletto Mm -hmm. has never seen the light of day. Uh, Goodnight Saigon... Did make its way to VH1 in the 80s and the 90s, so that surfaced uh, a couple of years later, and then it also got tacked on to the end of the Essential Video Collection as a bonus video, so that has resurfaced. And then, about five, six, seven maybe years ago, I think it was 2013 or 2014, Until the Night resurfaced. Um, the Billy Joel, yeah. the official Vivo or YouTube channel put out until the night from this show. And my gosh, it sounds incredible. If you haven't heard it, look, look up until the night live from long Island on YouTube, and you're going to get a great performance. And this is one that actually uh, showcases Russell Javers as a singer the uh like the when mm-hmm. the sun goes down and the day is over that whole section of the song it's billion russell training lead vocals and harmonies and everything it sounds so great Believe they uh they left it off of live from our island but uh hopefully if columbia or sony ever puts it out again we can see this yeah so after until the night though they go into still rock and roll to me and
1: this is the part of the set we were talking about before which is a common sequencing technique of billy's where now we're getting into a block of real big rockers where now the crowd just gets on their feet. Billy's on his feet the whole time.
0: And he just drives it all home. He does. And actually that New York Times piece, the author there alludes to that as well. He talks about how mm-hmm. his show just ramps up. And by the time you're hitting, still rock and roll to me, it's like, all right, engines are on, let's go.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an extra riff, so to speak, from David Brown at the beginning of it, which is really nice. A little nice add-on that's nowhere on the, on the record.
0: Yeah, like Lib starts that that shuffle kick drum beat to kind of get into the feel of the song. And then, yeah, David's got, mm-hmm. I really like David's guitar tone on it. I, I don't know really how I'd describe it, but he's playing, I know he's playing uh, Gibson Les Paul. Um, uh-huh. and yeah, he goes into that great riff and then Billy counts into the tune, but yeah, I, I, I like that. And I don't, I don't know that they've done that too much after that. So that's fairly unique to this performance. Yeah.
1: There's also a slight deviation in the lyrics, it sounds like. Instead of saying, odd oh, and you think too much, they say, odd oh, and you drink too
0: much. Right, yeah, you drink too much. <laughs> so, and they, that's something that I've heard a lot over the years, so I think it's its funny that every now and again they'll pull it out. And they, they yeah. must they must call it out or something, because when they do it, they all do it together, because everyone's singing on that, that callback. Right. But yeah, that, that always cracks me up there. And Billy is, this is the first one too, he's standing at the mic. So he's, you know, he's not at a keyboard during this song. And he's kind of kind of ha- getting the Elvis thing going on where he's just kind of shaking and kind of moving his hips and swagging around there at the mic. So he's, yeah. he's kind of getting into that kind of character, which is fun to see. Yeah, and this is something I'll
1: bring up again on Big Shot because he uses a little bit of the same move. But his movements are really tight. Like again, they don't look choreographed, but he knew exactly what he was doing and it's just in perfect time and it's visually very very pleasing.
0: It is. Yeah, it mm-hmm. really is. Yeah. So yeah. that's a fun one. Uh and I love leading out of this. We got we got a couple glass houses songs right in a row after Still Rock and Roll to Me. We get into sometimes a fantasy, which I always love that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a favorite of mine too. In fantasy here, Billy is back at the CP eighty and as I was saying earlier this is you know they move out the in and out these keyboards as as needed during the show but this time for the first time behind Billy you can see a secondary drum kit for Liberty just behind Billy in the shadows so this is the first glimpse you see that oh there's another Hmm. drum kit I wonder what that's all about so so fantasy kind of gives the first the first little glimpse of of that which I thought was fun do we know why he used it? I never really heard the story as to what what the reasoning was behind it, but it made for like a fun encore. Ah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I dig David Brown's work on this tune. This is another one, like the Glass Houses record just in general, is a very guitar heavy album. David and Russell yeah. just have some great licks and great riffs and everything like that that are just really fun to to listen to and like David's guitar solo and and the riffs on on this song in particular are just really fun to watch. And David actually gets pretty animated, like after his guitar solo, and you go into the keyboard riff, you see him just kind of moving and jumping around and pretty animated on this song, which was really cool. So then we go back
1: to the 70s with Big Shot, and this one is definitely significantly faster than the album. Yes. And at this point in the set, it really makes a lot of sense. It really feels organic. This is another one where you say uh, it doesn't feel rushed. It's definitely fast, but it doesn't feel anxious or, or too fast or anything like that. But they're really just riding the wave at this point.
0: Yeah, and there's something with Billy when he's not at the piano and especially this time period where he's with a handheld mic and and running around the stage. That New York attitude comes out a little more because he's just kind <laughs> of like working the crowd and working the stage yeah. and just like. Songs like this where he's moving around, he just has a little more swagger in his voice and Big Shot is a prime example of that. I mean he starts the song by running running down and jumping up on top of some speaker cabinets and playing to one corner of the arena, you know, and yeah, so I really like how he uses the stage and has the attitude and just is running around. That's this is a fun one to me.
1: Yeah, it's the one too where he he's got that hip thing going again, but he does those perfect little hops down the runway.
0: Um, oh yeah, just that, in yeah. time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just really punctuates every every note of that and really really telegraphs to such a huge arena and once again without a jumbotron really telegraphs the
0: energy on stage without overdoing it. This was the first song too I noticed that that Dave LeBolt stepped out from behind the uh, his keyboard rig. So he's actually over at the CP eighty during big shot.
1: Yeah, it gives him a little time in the spotlight there. Yeah. So rolling right along then, we get into You May Be Right, so we're back in the Glass Houses territory. Mm -hmm. Billy's still walking around the stage. He's not at the piano
0: anymore. Yeah, and then Dave LeBolt moves over from the CP80 over to the grand piano.
1: And again, it's something we may not notice because we're watching what the cameras and the editors choose Mm -hmm. for us to watch. But in the Coliseum, if you're paying attention... It must be interesting to see that little game of musical chairs happening. A little bit of visual. Yeah. Something, you know. (laughs) And it
0: kind of reminds me, I'm a big Metallica fan. If you guys haven't noticed Mm -hmm. by now, I'm sure you'll pick it up as we go along. (laughs) Because aside from Billy, Metallica is like up there for me. And I've seen these guys live a lot. And they play in the round, you know, Uh where the stage is almost like a figure eight. And there's like vocal mics around the entire arena, uh, around the entire stage. And mm-hmm. they play to every corner of the stage. And it is so well choreographed. It's like a ballet. It's like they'll do the one <laughs> verse. And then when there's the break before the, the second verse or whatever, you know, James Heffield will go over to this side and Kirk will move to where Robert was and Robert will move over here. And they're all just moving in this like very fluid pattern to where they're always yeah. covering different areas of the stage, but they're always moving around. I, I love stuff like that, and it would have been really cool, like you said, to be a fly on the wall to see the big picture of how they were all moving right. around on stage between songs like that. And this was the song, too, where that second drum kit that I was talking about gets pushed out onto stage right. Mm. It's a much smaller kit, so you you only have the two rack toms, and I'm not sure if it's one or two floor toms, but it's a significantly smaller kit that gets pushed out uh, for a couple of songs here, starting with You Maybe Right. Yeah,
1: I almost wonder if it's those Glass houses songs were so much more stripped down that it felt better to play it on a smaller set, something like that.
0: Yeah. Maybe it kind of made it feel a little more intimate. I think with him downstage near the front closer to the rest of the guys because on this tour, especially one thing I was noticing his main drum riser is pretty high up there. He is right because it's a very tiered stage. You have Liberty's drum riser. Then you have some other keyboard platforms where the keyboards move in and out. Then you have mm-hmm. the then you have the ramps and the guitar players and then Billy, and so Liberty is quite far up there. So to have him come down to stage level to like low stage level for a couple songs probably does give it that intimate feel. Kind of brings it in a little tighter. And this was one that was written with arenas in mind. Yeah, he, absolutely Billy talks about that. Yeah, as he got into glass houses is when they were starting to transition, like I was saying, into these bigger venues, ultimately into these arenas. And I think he really was thinking like, okay, how is this going to sound in a big hockey arena? So if, you know, jazz and stuff that's like super intricate like that really doesn't transition to these big arenas that have just crazy boomy acoustics and just sound mm-hmm. bouncing everywhere. So, you know, there's a reason why bands like ECDC sound so good in a big arena. It's because their songs are so like four on the floor and sound so yeah. stripped and big. And that's kind of what Billy was doing with Glass House is stripping the songs back and having having a lot more breath and less intricacy songs that were really gonna be able to sound really big and really good on these big venues. Right.
1: And it really shows on this one there's you know, when you listen to the studio version, it there's a lot of, of space in everything and mm-hmm. live that space gets filled up a little just with the natural acoustics of the room and even just the energy of them on stage. You really see how he wrote that to translate. So this is the
0: first encore break, and this is where the band heads off stage. And Billy actually stays on the entire time. A lot of times, everyone jumps off stage, cools off, gets some water, you know, towels Mm -hmm. to dry their face off and everything like that. But when the band ducks off, Billy stays on stage waving to the crowd, I think, shaking some hands and whatnot. So he's he's staying up there the entire time. And the crowd just keeps going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And then you see him just wave the band back on. Now, I know encores are built in the set list and like when the encore break, all that is very much planned. But he made it look as unplanned as you could. I liked seeing him wave the band back on stage. That was a nice, th- nice right. touch, you know?
1: Yeah. It's like, it's Nassau, it's Long Island. They're, they're going to keep playing, you know? <laughs> right.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Once again, he's, he's out on the wireless mic. He's running around the stage. He's shaking people's hands. We
0: see Doug walk back up to Liberty. Um, Liberty's got his arm around him again. It's so sad that Doug's no longer with us and Liberty's not playing yeah. with the band. And I love the guys in the band now and they're great players, but that bond that Liberty and Doug especially had that like you see in moments yes. like that, it's just so amazing to see it on a stage like that. So yeah, here with Only the Good Die Young is where you uh, see a lot of Mark Rivera working this stage as well too. And I love how he starts to sax solo. He actually gets up on top of Billy's piano, lays back kicks his feet up in the air and is just like wailing into that sax solo before um before getting up and just working around the stage and Mark and Billy are kind of playing to each other and like I think it's the line where it's like did she ever say a prayer for me and you see Mark drop to his knees to like pray to Billy <laughs> and they're just kind of you know playing off each other a little bit and these kind of funny yeah. little moments and I, yeah I love Mark hammering it up on this tune this was a lot of fun yeah and Billy near the end, too, He, uh, you see Billy dump a cup of water on his hand and dump it under the piano keys and just is just running his hands back and forth, <laughs> just this rock and roll moment. And so, this is the last one with the band. So, that you know, this is the big loud ending with the full band. And now it's just Billy for the, the last couple songs of the night. And they skipped the one after learning the good die young here. They skipped Where's the Orchestra on the video release. So, we never did get to see that. But we then lead into Souvenir, which is a great ending i think
1: and that was the ending for a long time before piano man
0: right took that last song slot yeah. i'm so used to how the encores and the ending have been the last 20 years that i i love the fact that he's ending with a song like souvenir here
1: it's really an example of him kind of bringing you back down from the peak he's not leaving you know they always say leave him wanting more and I'm sure he does. Yeah. But at the same time he brings brings things down like a notch, so you're maybe okay with, with going home now. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, he yeah. and that's a great testament to an artist that can control the tempo of the show and kind of control the yeah. emotional response of an audience. So, you know, he's mm. taking them on the ride throughout this show and then really the culmination of the, the energy is only the good die Young. And then he, like you said, he, he. and then he kind of brings it down and brings it back into this small moment again. Mm-hmm. Like the rest of the stage is yeah. pretty dark. And then you just have Billy kind of like settling down the night. And then the show kind of goes off into the sunset, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put yeah. it. I like that. So yeah. So some of the audio that you've heard here, it's been fun to go back and listen to some of this and, There's a gentleman named Jamie Tate who did an incredible remaster of the audio who I first connected with on the Billy Joel group on Facebook. Billy Joel completely retold. He actually took the original Laserdisc of the Live from Long Island and was able to pull the audio out. He's a recording engineer by trade, so... Mm -hmm. He took the audio from the Laserdisc and did a really nice remaster. So some of these clips here are honestly the best I've ever heard the audio sound. And all it does, though, is make Uh me want to hear Sony do it right and take this show and really give it a nice treatment and reissue it. Because it's really such a great document and such a special show that it's a shame that it's been officially out of print, you know, now since the mid 80s, late 80s now.
1: And what you guys can't see is that Michael is actually holding his copy of the Laserdisc right
0: now. Yeah, I do not have really a Laserdisc nice. player, so I'm one of those <laughs> guys that will buy stuff and can't play them. <laughs> so, I, so I have it in two of the three formats that it has existed. It was released on Laserdisc, VHS, and I'm pretty sure Betamax, which was a very short-lived yeah, video format <laughs> back in the day as well. So, um, right. Laser discs are actually kind of cool because I'm looking at it in my, in my hand and it's a 12-inch CD, it looks like. So it's actually yeah. the size of a vinyl record, but the disc itself looks like a compact disc. And um, and the back of it, compared to the video release, has two more photos than the videotape does. So they used a little bit more huh. here. That's I didn't notice that till just now.
1: I've seen one... I've seen one movie on LaserDisc. It was The Blues Brothers, and what a great movie to watch on it! But yeah, the video quality or the the image quality on LaserDisc is is phenomenal. Certainly better. Yeah, I would say better than DVD, obviously, because it's got so much more to work with. But I don't know if you can if you can rent a LaserDisc player. I think you're in for a treat with that. Yeah, I, I kind
0: of <laughs> want to. I want to see if I can find one. I wonder if those go for anything reasonable on a secondary market. Uh, a lot of Billy's stuff did come out on Laserdisc and the, I mean, everything until I think the shades of gray, 1993, the river of Dreams documentary that came out on Laserdisc as well. So that'd be, really? yes. Yeah. Wow. So everything from this, the video albums, the matter of trust stuff. And yeah, uh-huh. so all that stuff is, is available on Laserdisc. And I know, I know Laserdisc had a, had a longer life in Japan than it did here in the U S. So like that market, you know, stuck around a lot longer than it did here. I mean, LaserDisc kind of came and went quick and we mostly went from like VHS to DVD. That was the main popularity consumption transition, you know? Right. Well, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I I've watched this concert dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of times since I first saw it in the mid eighties. And I tell you what, it's been a treat listening to it with another goal in mind. You know, it's, it yeah. wasn't just for the pure appreciation. Now, I still appreciated it watching it again, but trying to pick up some things that I felt were a little different and unique about this performance. It was fun to kind of dig a little deeper and listen to it and watch it with a different objective at hand. And it really gave me a new appreciation for what is already my favorite Billy Joel live show.
1: Yeah, so when you're done with this episode, find it on YouTube, fire up your bootleg, dust off your VCR, whatever you got to do. Take another look and another listen um, and let us know what you think. uh, Having listened to us dissect it and analyze it and point things out, let us know what you think watching it after reviewing all of this.
0: So yeah, we're on social media everywhere. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and see kind of what your takes are on that. We'll actually post a playlist too, so you can listen and watch the live from Long Island concert as well. So we'd love to have you check it out and let us know what you think of it as well. And you can always shoot us an email at glasshousespodcast at gmail dot com. So that's another way to get in touch with us. We'd love to uh, we'd love to stay in touch with you about it.
2: Yeah.
1: We're on every social except for MySpace, the Betamax of social media.
0: (laughs) It is the Betamax of social media. But I tell you what, MySpace back in its day was fantastic. It was a juggernaut. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I tell you what, a little side note on MySpace. Back when it was the thing, the social network to be on, Uh I was tour managing this singer-songwriter named Ashton Allen, and we booked so many shows and connected with so many people around the country, all thanks to MySpace. We booked like, so mm-hmm. much of his tour just by connections we made via MySpace. And so at the time, man, I tell you, it was worth its weight in gold for us.
1: Yeah. Uh, I knew a great singer-songwriter out of uh, Doylestown. He sadly passed away. His name is Damien DeRose. And I had interviewed him in the, in the MySpace heyday. And he had booked an entire U- U- uh, tour of Europe based on MySpace wow. because somebody over there heard him and was like, we'll bring you over because everybody here loves American music. And they flew him over there and he had this big following, you know, in Germany and, and all these other countries.
0: Wow, That's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we're not on MySpace. So you're going to have to stick with the uh, <laughs> traditional social media outlets right now. Yeah. And so that'll just have to do, but you know, we hope you dig what we're doing so far. I know Jack and I are having a lot of fun with this Billy Joel stuff. And yeah. I listen to Billy all the time, but it's been really fun to put on a different hat and peel back some things I really didn't even notice before or I had forgotten about over the years. So it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, if you, if you dig what you're hearing, too, we'd really appreciate leaving us a positive review on Apple podcasts or leave us a rating, things like that, because that really helps us get in front of more people. So if you really dig what you're hearing, mm-hmm. we would appreciate that review or that rating. And we'd love to grow this community and your help and support would uh, mean a lot for us. Sure. So that's it for this week where we dug into Live from Long Island. We'll be back in a couple more weeks here with another episode of Glass Houses. We hope to see you then. See you then.